Welcome to another episode of Unscripted, and I have the great pleasure to introduce Roselle uh, Zafran, who is CEO and co-founder and founder of Key Caliber. Roselle, thank you very much for joining me. How are you today? Awesome. Thank you for the invite. It's a pleasure to be here. Happy Friday. So before we jump into, Nino is, is a co-founder and founder of a company startup. Every day is a Monday, right? There's a lot going on. So we'll jump into that briefly, but why don't we get started and just your background, how you got started in, in, in security and maybe beforehand, what was your, your background, your academic background and so on? Yeah. So back in the days when I was at university, I went to Princeton and studied civil engineering, specifically focused on environment, environmental engineering. So very different from cybersecurity. Back at the time, there weren't any school, I don't think, maybe one that had anything related to cybersecurity in myself here. And yeah, so I worked in that industry and doing environmental engineering for a year. And then I decided to switch gears. I was in San Francisco at the end of the dot-com boom and in the beginning of the bust. And then I felt I should be working at a tech startup. And so I joined the tech startup, which was crazy because during the bust, it went through six rounds of layoffs. I managed to stay intact at each round and learned a lot about that whole environment and how crazy it was and all the ups and downs. And then decided, oh, I'm going to try this myself. And so I had the entrepreneurial bug. And once you have that, you really can't shake it. And so I launched what was a participatory sports portal. So it was if you wanted to find workout partners, a, a tennis partner, a soccer team concept, but it struggled, but I learned a ton about what it took to to get a startup off the ground and decided I'd go back to entrepreneurship when I had a better understanding of an industry. And then I happened to be looking at job postings and a posting that seemed fascinating as a computer crime investigator doing computer forensics and internet investigations. I knew nothing about that industry, but the job sounded really cool. So I applied and convinced the hiring manager I would learn on the job. And that's what started me down the road of cybersecurity. So I worked on a variety of different cases, and some of them were what was called at the time network intrusions. And then eventually just went squarely down the cybersecurity path in forensics. I was at the Department of Homeland Security Leading, cyber, leading the malware and forensic analysis team and doing forensic analysis. I was also an entrepreneur there. So I was trying to get back to the entrepreneurial side and realized that we had all these analysis teams doing amazing work, but none of that work was getting correlated or consolidated. And so U.S. CERT internally built a threat intel platform before the term threat intel platform even existed. Way ahead of the curve with that. And that was, that was all my crazy idea that I was able to bring to fruition. And then from there, I moved to the executive office of president. And this was during the Obama administration. And there I was leading the SOC that was defending the White House's network. So amazing experiences on the government side. And I had a good understanding of what was working, what was not working, where there were technology gaps. And at that point, entrepreneurial bug was starting to really jump up again. And so I decided I've got this experience now. I know how to build a security product. I did that internally at Department of Homeland Security. Let's go try this on as a startup. And so my first startup was an incident 
response platform. That company was called Uplevel Security. That one was eventually sold to McAfee. And now I'm on my second cybersecurity startup. So I feel I'm a veteran at this point. Um, what, and that's a, what a crazy journey. And crazy, but awesome learning experience. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And it also shows quite a bit about you, like how you managed to reinvent yourself a couple of times. And then you got the bug of the entrepreneurship bug, and then you decided to do something about it wherever you are, wherever you landed. But let's just unravel a couple of things. First of all, uh, civil engineering. So that's not a, you glance over it like if it was nothing, but it's not an easy practice to begin with. First of all, I don't know a lot of civil engineers. And I think because it's, no, I'm serious. It's just that maybe I'm not in the same field, but also I think it's a, it's a very difficult STEM discipline that requires a lot of different skills and attributes to be successful in. So do you find that some of the skill set that you acquired through that practice were an enabler in your success in starting in the cybersecurity career? Yeah, yeah. So certainly the engineering is, is very math heavy. And I love doing math. I actually miss doing math. But also with engineering, you, you have to be very meticulous and organized in the way that you structure what you're doing. And that was very helpful with the computer forensic side of it, for sure. Because computer forensics, there, there is an art to being good at an investigation. And that involves realizing, okay, I'm starting out with one lead or maybe two leads. And I'm going to go through all the paces for each of those leads to develop more leads. And then go through that same process for each new lead. And that whole concept, that has a lot of similarities with engineering, where you have something where you're, it's your starting point, and it's going to take you in a direction, and you have to complete every step in that in order to then successfully get to the next. So in, in that sense, having that mindset was very useful. And you remember like the first time you requested to, to join in a role you'd never done before and managed to convince the hiring manager they're going to do OJT on-the-job training. What was that like? And do you remember your first 60 to 90 days, like just jumping right on into it? What was your first tasks and how did you manage to, to overcome the fact that you did not have background in it? Yeah, my salary was not very high because I was new to the field. And so it ended up being a win-win because I come, came in at this lower salary and I w was able to learn on the job. My salary actually, I think it's almost doubled by the time that I left because I had gained the skill set. And so one of the first orders of business was to earn certifications. To, to, and so in that process of studying for the certification, so I earned CISSP and an NCASE certified examiner it's a very specific computer forensics certification. And so that whole process of earning those certifications allowed me to, to, yeah, you had to do all sorts of studying. I was studying on the weekends to get up to speed. I think I was 600 something in the world with the ENCE. Right? That's so amazing. Really early. Yeah. Very early in those days. And it also helped that there was another computer forensic analyst in the lab, the one other person in the lab, and he was great at being a mentor and just directing me as to what I needed to focus on to, to build up the skill set. 
it just, it works for me because I'm the type of person that learns best by just jumping in and doing it and figuring it out. That's what, it's part of why entrepreneurship is a good fit. So for me, it, I would just, I'd get these new cases. And so then I'd learn something new to be able to work on those cases. And just doing these cases, what specifically attracted you in the kind of the hands-on experience of doing these, being like a Sherlock Holmes yeah. in terms of trying to figure out what happened? Do you, do you, anything that springs to mind that was just something that you liked about it? Maybe like a couple of incidents you remember? Yeah, so I like being a detective and I loved finding the smoking. So some of the cases that I worked on, because I was working at a law firm, and so some of them were not cybersecurity per se. They weren't network intrusions, or, but they were more on the line, along the lines of theft of intellectual property, for example, and, and employee misconduct. And this was back in the days where it was really easy to find web cache versions of pages. So you could, and I was able to very easily hone in on where you could find the Yahoo, because it was more Yahoo than Gmail even then, but the Yahoo emails. So you'd be able to get the, just the HTML page. Now it's very different because... Now all the data is stored in different ways. And there's, I think, SQLite database with some of it. And they're much more difficult to recreate it. But back in the days, you had these folders where the .html files sat. And so I could see exactly what the user had seen on the page. And there were a couple of them where it was just smoking guns. It was really exciting. This one guy, he was leaving a company and taking all the intellectual property of the company with him. And I had an email of him saying, and here's this, and here's that. And I'm looking forward to working with you. Uh, it was great. So it was always, I knew there was that potential for finding something that was super valuable. And that was always a great incentive to just dig as, as deep as needed to find something. Now, in the early days, what's interesting, and I always ask this question, is a lot of this stuff was not available, like it was not public domain. It's not like today you, you look up on YouTube or Google and you get like, tons of forensics example of how to do things. Yeah. You had to figure things, stuff, stuff on your own, right? There's not a lot of how-tos. So uh, how did you manage to do that? Yeah, I mean, so there were a couple of forum sites. I'm really dating myself here. And so that was how I would find some of the information. And some of it was reading the manuals for the products. It was definitely not as straightforward. And there certainly were no cool YouTube videos to just get a quick primer on something. So it did take more digging. I also had just hard physical books that had information as well. So yeah, it was a little bit more old school at that point. And then what... How did you get your next role? Because again, you propel yourself very quickly from being hands-on to managing team and be responsible for large projects and so on. Walk me through the kind of the path you took and what steps did you take to get those very senior roles? Yeah, so I will say that wrinkled in with all of the, those jumps, what I would do would, was I would work for two or three years and then I would actually take some time off I'd quit and go spend about two or three months sometimes longer traveling and then I'd come back and do the same so I always structured it that stay for a while and learn have a good experience where I felt I was really growing and then take some time off and chill and go traveling 
And yeah, so after the law firm, I actually I worked for a government contractor and I worked for Ernst & Young and in all those cases doing yeah, down in the weeds, doing forensics. I had at that point the ENCE, so it wasn't hard to find a job. Once I had the ENCE, then never had trouble finding a job. And once I was down the cybersecurity path, never had trouble finding a job. So it was always a matter of what interested, what I wanted to do. And I had this one decision point. This was at, when I was at the Department of Homeland Security where I had to choose. Do I want to stay really technical and be on the analyst side or do I want to switch to the managerial side? And it was a tough decision for me because you think about it, when you're an analyst, you, if you have a bad day, it's because you're fighting with the software or hardware. And when you're a manager, when you're having a bad day, it's because you're fighting with a person. You can't just turn off the person and turn back on and expect everything to be back to the way you want it, the way that you can with, with software or hardware. So it, it was, I knew it would be a very different set of skills that I'd need. And so it was a tough decision. And I really went back and forth with it for a while because I, I liked being on the investigative side and just being really down in the weeds on the technical side. But at the same time, I also like the idea of being able to shape the path of the organization more. And that's why I ultimately decided to go down the managerial road. There's so many things to unravel here. First of all, like what's the two-year mark? What is that? Like, when did you know you just wake up one day and say, after lunch and say, hold on for a second, I'm stagnant, not learning. Because a lot of people don't do that. A lot of people either stay or maybe, or stay too short of a time they like switch jobs after eight months what was specifically with you because you were obviously successful doing that that gave you the idea that you're the right the timing is right yeah some of it came down to was i bored i get bored easily and i like change and so there there were one or two jobs where i just got to the point where just doing the commute i just didn't want to keep doing that every day and but much of it was just around whether I was still learning and the feeling that I was growing my skill set. Because there are many jobs where you hit a ceiling. You're just capped out in terms of your growth, especially when you're a, someone very technical. If you just want to stay in the technical lane and not move to management, you just hit a ceiling and you just can't go any further with it. And many people are just content with that. They like just where they are, they don't want to move on. But for me, whenever I felt that I was hitting that ceiling where I wasn't growing, wasn't learning, or I saw that there was just no path for for ever changing, then I would just say, okay, let's see what else is out there. And there's always something. And there's always something that was interesting. And as an engineer, you mentioned specifically that you had to switch. So engineering is very precise, very predictive. As you mentioned, a lot of trial and error to figure things out and dissect it into smaller pieces. But when you're talking about managerial positions, you're dealing with, as you mentioned, unpredictable people. And there's a lot of more variables. Were you ever questioning like just the fact that you're, whether this is the right path for you to start taking ownership over larger, more complex human-based projects? No, once I went down that path, I saw that it had lots of exciting potential in its own way. It wasn't, you're, you're not going to find a smoking gun. It wasn't, you didn't get that dopamine hit from that type of activity. But 
you could see how involved in strategic decision-making and how you, your input would be part of the direction for the organization. And that, to me, felt very rewarding. And I'm very mission-driven. Very, that's why I moved to the government side, because I just felt very passionate about the mission of what we were doing. And that's why I, I switched to the entrepreneurial side and stayed in this industry, is because I feel very strongly about the need for improving cybersecurity. And so with that in mind, it's one thing to feel that you are involved in a mission that's important. And it's another thing to, to feel that you're shaping that. And you're getting to where you you know that something to get to. And so that was always exciting. Once I decided, all right, this is the path I'm going down, there was lots that I found to be really rewarding. Yeah, there are definitely still some days where dealing with people is not fun. But in general, I do like having that ability. And then you mentioned specifically that you got the bug of entrepreneurship and intrapreneurship. It, was that because of where you were, like on the West Coast? where people were inventing things and being part of a startup community? Or was it just something that you saw? Again, because that's not trivial, because a lot of people just are content either joining a company, but not necessarily inventing something new is very tough for all different levels. It's, there's just so many moving parts and you always have self-doubt that you're, whatever you're coming up with is not going to be successful. What specifically for you was the driving force behind starting to get that bug in creating new businesses? Yeah, I love building. I love taking my crazy ideas and turning into them into something that, that people use and find valuable. That, that never gets old. And so I saw that with the very first startup that I did back when I was in San Francisco. And that was, it was just really exciting. And I love that side of it where you're filling a gap. You're doing something that hadn't been thought of before and you're making people happy from it and providing value to society. And that I loved about it. But didn't you also see the difficult side? You mentioned specifically that you went through several rounds of layoff. Again, it's not trivial. Most people say, oh my God, like I, I'm not joining a startup ever again. I'm going to go work for the government. I'm going to work out for, go work for a large, more established business. Didn't it scare you, the fact that you were you had to experience the difficult, the ugly side of the startup bits that lives day to day or quarter to quarter? So what I've learned about myself is that I have a very high risk tolerance. And I'm okay with something being risky, and I'm very okay with it being hard. That I've dealt with hard my entire so that it just it doesn't and sometimes it probably should because sometimes I'm looking at trying to climb the equivalent of Mount Everest and it should probably phase me a little bit more than it does but that doesn't really go into the thinking I view it as yeah it's hard that's why everyone's not doing it and but hard I can do so I can so and, and how do you deal with it with the tough days right because there's a lot of especially as an entrepreneur there's a lot of tough difficult days that you have to go through and it's a bit of a roller coaster. It can be a great day and a bad day at the same day. Yeah. How do you do that personally? Do you accept the fact that you're going to feel really lousy part of the time and you're, and you try to even it out as much as you can. 
So you can't get super excited when something goes well, unless the ink is signed. Unless the deal is inked, then you can get excited. But in, in general, you can't get too high. You can't get too low. You have to try to keep it even keel. And part of why that's feasible is because it's all temporary, that it's just going to be a constant up and down. So yeah, you couldn't be having a great day. It's going to come back down. And you can be having a really lousy day, but you know it's going to come back up. And so you, you just get accustomed to this insane cadence. And you just try to be as grounded as you can in all of that. So before we jump into what you do today, if there are entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs want to be listening to this conversation, because a lot of us have, I think, ideas that never materialize that we know. And sometimes the worst part of it is that a year or two years later, you see someone else doing it and it's, oh shit, I could have done it myself. What would you recommend for someone, you know, that maybe not have like such high risk tolerance like you do and maybe is struggling to on the day-to-day -day job and trying to figure out what to do next? What would you recommend? Yeah. If someone wants to be entrepreneur, it starts with formulating an idea of what you want to do and then not keeping that in a vacuum and making sure that you are talking with others about it and getting buy-in from others. Because ideally, if you want to go to your senior leadership and say, I think we need to implement this, it's much easier if you go and say, I think we need to implement this, and so do 15 other people on the team. And then you have more strength behind what you're trying to do. And you have a clearer picture of where you want to go because they're going to all have input too. And you can formulate a, a better plan, a better plan that's maybe covering some areas you hadn't even thought of. So I'd start with just getting that buy-in and buy-in from your peers is first place to start. And then you work up from there. Because when I was entrepreneur at Department of Homeland Security, it started with me saying, hey, we need this. And then other people on my team said, oh, yeah, you're right. We need it. And then other teams said, yeah, we need it. And eventually the deputy director said, I want Roselle to be the product owner for this. But it didn't all happen overnight. It was lots and lots of conversations. And I was gathering requirements for a long time before it got to the point where there was acceptance and encouragement from leadership. But it got to that point because I don't even know how he heard about it because I don't think I had talked to him directly. But he, it got to the point where he knew that this was brewing and he liked the direction of it. And let me ask you just the one thing about like your travel thing, he, the, the fact that he took buffers. Um, not a lot of people do that either. People, most people that I know, just they take a job and then they move to the next role and they typically, they'd be lucky to have a week off because of various different reasons. Specifically, you mentioned that was something you did uh, by design. Maybe tell me why and what was the outcome and why were you so persistent about doing that? So I did it in between the dot-com company that I worked for and starting my own company. I did three months of traveling. And once I had done that, I was completely hooked on traveling. And I just wanted to continue to be able to do that. And I almost, in, in some ways, I was, I would look at the next job as, okay, I'm going to really build up the travel funds in this job. 
And so in two years, I'll be able to take time off and do another trip. And so, yeah, it was once, once I got, got into backpacker mode, I was a backpacker back in the days, then I just loved it. And in, in many ways, there, there are some similarities with backpacking around the world and being an entrepreneur. You have to really be able to just go with the flow and be resilient and be flexible and be open to serendipity, but at the same time, being very aware of your surroundings and knowing where there, there could be major risks. It actually goes together fairly well. And again, I have a high risk tolerance, so I wasn't worried I wasn't going to be able to find a job. Maybe I should have been, but wasn't. I just, I knew, yeah, I'll find something. I guess part of it just comes from having the mindset of, I'll figure it out. I'll land on my feet. And when so I have to ask you, what's your favorite destination? Since you already brought this up. <laughs> so I've been to over 60 countries. That's really, it's tough because it's like an apples to orange compar comparison when you think of a yeah, big city. So some of the big cities I love, see, London, Kyoto, Rio. Would yeah. you ever, would you ever consider are... open up in an office in some of these cities? <laughs> I, I'd be totally down with that. Yeah. <laughs> So tell me, so running out of time, I just want to make sure we cover what you do today and, and why you decided again to jump into the deep end and create your own business. You obviously came across a gap somewhere that was not available, like off-the-shelf solutions out there. What was that? And again, what was like the inception from like a, an idea on a, a piece of paper, a napkin kind of thing to creating your own company? Yeah, so it, it stemmed from me feeling the pain points when I was on the operational side. So I remember at the executive office of the president, I always felt that I didn't have a clear understanding of the environment that we were defending. And that's a challenge for all organizations today. And if you don't know what you have, you can't protect it. And so having that constant sinking feeling of this is opaque to me. And if something happens in one spot, I have no understanding of whether it's going to impact something that's really critical. And that was a pain point that I felt very acutely when I was on the operational and side. Result, when you say something, give me an example of what that is. What can that well, can be? So, for example, you have a ransomware wasn't as big as it is now when I was on the operational side, but you have a ransomware attack. It incurs some workstation in Idaho. Is that going to impact the main application that is the primary source of revenue for the company? If you don't have an understanding of what the critical assets are in the environment, what they're connected to, you, you just have no understanding of it. And I think Colonial Pipeline is a good example of how they probably just had no understanding that ransomware attack on one spot was going to shut down their pipeline. And... If you think about it from an industry perspective, we can say this snippet of malware code is from this threat actor in this province, in this country. But then when we talk about our own internal environment and we say, what are your most important assets? Where are they? What are they connected to? What's the risk to them? And we weren't able to answer those questions. And that's why I built Key Caliber to answer those questions. So you have at least as good an understanding of your own environment as you do of the threat actors. And many of us have read Art of War, Sun Tzu, but it, one of the big concepts was you have to know yourself and know your enemy. That's how you win battles. You have to know both sides of it. 
And the systems we have in place today, if it wasn't for key caliber, don't we have, like, I, I know companies have multiple endpoints, agents, and they have behavioral analysis and some other agents, and they have firewall logs everywhere, server agents. Why is that? There's still, we companies have made investment in so many systems, but yet there's still such a big gap on the internal side. Yeah, because I think the focus, if you look at asset management, generally speaking, the focus has been on just find, trying to determine the totality and show everything that's in the And that is the first step of it. And, that, and we do that. But at the end of the day, you're not getting to everything. And you, you're not securing everything the same way. You have to know what's most valuable. And then that becomes the priority. It becomes a priority when you're figuring out what you need to add more coverage on. It's the priority if an alert comes in. It's the priority for patching. But that whole side of it, that's been a manual effort. So if anyone knows their critical assets, it's because they've had a team of people go and do surveys and questionnaires and pull back answers. And that really didn't work in the 90s. It certainly doesn't work now in today's complex environments. And so it's, yes, we've got all this technology, great, but then we add a manual layer on top of it. And that, that makes no sense. And so we say, no, you need technology throughout that whole process. So technology to understand what all the assets are in the environment and get that inventory, and then technology to identify what's most important in that environment so you can prioritize it. And technology to compute the risk to it too, because that's the game. With cybersecurity, what you're trying to do is reduce risk, reduce cyber risk to an acceptable level. And so that's why we bring technology, data-driven solution, automation to all of that. So how do you do that? They're just, if you look at the companies, they're so diverse from the infrastructure perspective and it also from their business perspective, what it is that they do. A, a pipeline company is not the same as a retailer, it's not the same as a manufacturing. So how do you take all those into account to, in terms of how you quantify the risk associated with certain assets? And maybe talk to me about the process of, of key caliber and how you automate. Yeah, so risk has two big components, likelihood and impact. On the impact side, that's the side that's in the manual surveys and questionnaires. For that side of it, what we do is what we call asset behavior analytics. So we're looking at how the asset is interacting with other assets, how it's interacting with users, what's running on it. And from that, we're able to infer an impact score from 1 to 100 for every asset. So you know the ones that are 85 or above. Those are your critical assets, your crown jewels. And then that impact score then feeds into the risk score because risk is impact times likelihood. And on the likelihood side, that's where you bring in all the information related to the vulnerabilities, where it is in relation to the internet, what threats are on it, what mitigating controls you have in place. That all goes to that side bit. So under the hood, the risk calculation is using the basic tenets of the FAIR methodology. And, but what's very distinct about the way that we operate is that we are doing this impact score for every asset and then pulling that into the risk calculation and doing the risk calculation for every asset. So you have a very granular look. It's not 
oh, here's the risks of the whole organization where you can't really make heads or tails of that and you don't know how to reduce that risk. If you have it on the asset level, you can aggregate it to the application level, you can aggregate it to the business unit level, and you can see where the biggest risk is and how to reduce it most effectively. It's so interesting. So you mentioned that the you quantify or map the interactions between assets and therefore, so how, what's the secret sauce there? Because again, if I look at the, of a map of, let's say network map of interaction between devices on a organizational scale, it probably looks like a crazy spaghetti of not just devices, but the application on the devices talking to a bunch of other stuff. How do you map that? That's a that's by itself is a is quite the endeavor to figure things out what talks to what because it's just it's so random sometimes and so convoluted any organizational size. Yeah, and that's why so the network traffic and what talks to what is a fraction of what goes into to that impact score. It's certainly not all that goes into it. And we always have to explain this because people automatically think that's all that's being used. Yeah. And that's yeah. And that's gonna have so many false positives and false negatives. Because you can have something that's chatty but irrelevant or something that is only pinging once or twice a day that is very relevant. And so that's just one of the types of characteristics that we use. But in, with respect to that particular characteristic, you were mentioning earlier, how do you differentiate companies in different industries? And so what we do is we look what is essentially the average within that environment. So it's not as if we say if it's over... A gig of traffic, then it's definitely something that's high. It's all relative to what's normal in that environment. So if a gig of traffic is nothing because it's this really chatty and active environment, then that's not going to be indicative of anything. So it really depends. On, uh, it, it, what our technology does is normalizes based on the environment. So all the computations are based on what something is relative to the average within that environment. And yeah, so the network traffic, that, that's part of it, but we're also looking at what services are running on it, what courts are open, what users are connecting to it, how central it is to, to other assets that are high criticality. We've got a thousand features in the machine learning models, but those are some of the high-level concepts. So what does the deployment uh, look like? And then after, like, how long does it take to, to, to model that normal? And then when you look at it, is there like a wow effect? All of a sudden they, they see what they haven't seen before because you do get visibility, I'm assuming, to something that you've not had before. So are, is there any surprises there? Oh, yeah. Every time we do a POC, there's surprises. Yeah. Yeah. And so the POC is a super light lift. All we need is a day of network traffic and a CSV file and a vulnerability scan and a CSV file. And then takes us maybe hours, maybe not even, to upload the results, and then you get the results right away. So it's not, oh, we have to sit and wait for two weeks before you can see anything. That's not the, the All of the normalizing is done through aggregations, and it doesn't require sitting and waiting to develop a baseline. And yeah, we always have folks that are very surprised to see our results. We've identified critical assets where they said, oh, yeah, we didn't actually know that was critical, but you're right. Now that you bring that to our attention. Or there's a critical asset which has some really high risk to it, and they had no idea the risk was that high. So that, that happens all the time. It's uh, interesting. And then when do they, during deployment, how do they get 
the benefits like what would be like using the system would look like on a regular basis because i'm assuming again it's a moving target right because the organization is dynamic yeah absolutely so what we do is we plug into to data sources so network traffic and vulnerability scanner data are required but if we have more data sources the better we've been finding that some of the modern edrs can even provide some of the network traffic and vulnerability scanner data and certainly they provide other really useful contexts. And so we can connect directly with the point solution and just hit the APIs. If the point solution's API is acting funky, then the results can just be exported to a CSV and pushed into an S3 bucket or something like that. And we'll just pull that. Or we just sit on the SIM. We really like sitting on the SIM because then we have lots of data sources in one spot and we can take, oh, we'll take this too, we'll take that too. And we can pull in all those data sources and then also feedback our results, our impact scores, our risk scores, right back into to the SIM as well. Interesting. So what's the easiest way for people to reach out to you to learn more about what you're doing and potentially see how you can help them with their journey to figure things out where the risk is and how to quantify because again it's without it it's a whole menu process we know is something that we should move away from so what's the easiest way for people to reach out to you yeah just ping me just send me an email roselle at keycaliber.com 